We're going to do something real quick. I've not done this before, but we're going to do it. If you are going to follow along in your own Bible, that's fine. You can go ahead and flip to Jonah. But if you are, not, are like got a phone or something like that, I'm going to tell you that I'm going to preach from Jonah 4.11. But I'm really going to kind of bounce all over the book. And I want you to be able to follow along. If you turn, if you take the Bible out of your the seat in front of you and you turn to page 744, Jonah's laid out right there on two pages. You don't have to move around a lot. You'll be able to follow through easily as I kind of point things out. But uh, we are in our last week of this series, Jonah, this big God story. And I do hope that as you think back that you've seen this over and over as a story really about the God who sent Jonah, who appointed the fish to swallow Jonah, who re- uh, relented when Nineveh repented and, and seen him really as the hero. We have asked three questions of the text every week. Uh, what does this teach us about God? And throughout, we've seen God on display. We've seen God presented. We've seen his glory. We've seen his greatness. We've seen his goodness and we've seen his grace all the way throughout page after page, verse after verse, word after word. We have seen God on display. But that's not all we saw, was it? I mean, ultimately, we asked a second question. As we saw God, we were brought face to face with some truths about us. We asked our second question, well, if this reveals something about God, what does it reveal about us? And every week we saw ourselves. And as God was shining and as God was being demonstrated to be the majestic and pure and powerful and and, and beautiful God that he is, we didn't necessarily shine so brightly, did we? As we saw ourselves in Jonah, in these Ninevites, the sinful city that God had sent his mission for, and we saw ourselves in pagan sailors. And, and the reality is, is that we didn't see ourselves in the same way that we saw God. We, we saw that there was obviously a, a distinction, a, a division between who God is and who we are and really who we are supposed to be because of who God is. And so that always led us to our third question, what then will we do in response, how will we respond to this great and glorious God? How will we live differently because of what we know? What are we going to do? Because we see God to be gracious and glorious. We see God to be good and great, but we don't always act like it. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do knowing that God, by God's grace, it's the, God's grace is the only reason that we are able to stand in his presence? What are we going to do as we consider that? What are we going to do knowing that salvation truly belongs to the Lord? What are we going to do? That's the kind of the questions that we'd asked every week. And we'd come to the end of the, the, the sermon and I would give you questions and I would leave you and we'd walk away and I, we wouldn't answer them. We'd just, just leave you there. And that was intentional just as I think as we read Jonah chapter 4, 11 today that it was intentional that God left us with a question, an unanswered question. So even today, although it'll be in a different format, slightly different order, we will see God on display. We will see ourselves in light of who God is. And we will be left with a question as if God is speaking directly to us. As if he knew that one day you would be sitting in this church building listening to this message asking you this question. So let's go ahead and read it, then we'll talk about it, and and we'll break it out. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons 
who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And Jonah comes to this abrupt end. Don't you feel like you, I mean, don't you feel like there should be something after? I mean, think about what we've read through. Think about where we've been. We're brought to this abrupt end. Tell us the answer. What did he say? I mean, I think based on what we've studied about Jonah, I think we could come up with some excuses or, or some answers, not excuses. <laughs> we could probably come up with some excuses too, but, but I think we could come up with some answers. I think we could assume some things that he would say, but I would hope, I would hope how we've seen Jonah acting to this point wouldn't be how we'd see Jonah act in response to this final question. Let's just look at the question. Let's break it apart. He starts, and... Well, that obviously throws us into the middle of a context. That it shows us, that word shows us that, that this statement isn't the first time God has spoken. These aren't the first words to Jonah. God has been speaking. God has been working with Jonah. This brings us right in the middle, middle of this context. Well, what does it refer back to? So, so we have to understand this to understand the question, really. So what does and refer to? Well, it refers immediately to the verses just before. Do you remember what was happening last week as God was working with Jonah? Well, if you just look in the Bible, you can kind of scroll up. We're not going to read it. We will talk about it. But there, the verses are there. Jonah's hanging out on, the, on a hill outside the city. He's sitting to the east of the city waiting and watching for Nineveh to be destroyed. He's hoping for fire to fall from heaven or an earthquake to open the earth and Nineveh to be swallowed. I, I don't know which one he preferred. I didn't get to talk to him and ask him, but it seems as if he's hoping to see them destroyed. And while he's sitting there, he's like, man, I'm hot. So he builds himself a shelter. The, the shelter he has, the, the leaves are dead and they fade and wither away. And so there he's hot again. And, and God does something pretty amazing. In a day, in the course of just a short, very short period of time, God appoints a plant to grow. And so this plant grows from the ground. I mean, there's nothing there. And all of a sudden, this plant grows up and it's big enough, tall enough, wide enough to cover Jonah and give him shade and provide him comfort. I don't think Jonah misses the miraculous event here. I think he gets that God's at work. And it actually says that he's exceedingly glad because he's comforted. But in that evening, God appoints a worm, and the worm comes and eats the plant and destroys the plant, and the plant falls apart, and suddenly it's gone. And the sun comes up, and he starts to feel the heat. But that's not enough. God appoints a wind, a hot wind, to blow on Jonah, and he is very uncomfortable. And he's angry. In fact, he's so angry, he, he says to God, I'm so angry, I would rather be dead. I don't know that that's the right move. I'm just saying, you're talking to a God who can actually make that happen. But that's what he says. But even that by itself, I mean, this story, why in the world is this happening? Why, why is God doing this with Jonah? Why in the world is this plant growing up? It doesn't even make sense by itself, so we have to take, a, take another step back. Why in the world is Jonah so angry about this plant? And what we see at the beginning of chapter 4 is the reality that Jonah's not really angry first and foremost about a plant. He's angry and upset about something else. And he gives it to us in his own words. In verse 2 and verse 3, we will read these. They will be on the screen, but they're in your Bible as well. He says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, for, for I knew, I know this about you. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Hey, I know you're good. I know you're great. I know you're merciful and gracious. I know you're these things. But I'd rather be dead. For it is better to me to die than to live. Wow. Really? That's your reaction? He is angry. He is so upset. He is exceedingly angry because he, is, he has been called by God to do something he didn't want to do. And I, I, don't, I don't think these words are idle threats. I, I mean, this, this statement about, I'd rather be dead. I don't think these are just things he says. I mean, we say things, right? Like, I'm going to kill you. We say that stuff like that. We don't mean it. I mean, we're, I've said it, but I never killed anybody. I mean, I wanted to, but, but I never did it. And we say all kinds of things that we don't necessarily ever plan to follow through with. And Jonah, I, I think he's serious. I tell you, I think, he's so, I think he's serious not because of what he's saying here or because he's so angry, but because of what we saw him do in chapter 1 whenever he's in the middle of the storm. What was his answer? His answer wasn't repent and, God, I'm sorry, get me back to the shore so that I can go to Nineveh. He didn't admit any guilt. He didn't try to say, oh, God, I'm going to go. Just get me back. I'll go. No, he said, throw me overboard. Now, there's, a, there's an, an ounce of sacrifice in that, right? I mean, the sailors don't need to die on my behalf. Just throw me over. And then somewhere sinking to the bottom of the sea, as, the, as he's getting down close to it, talks about the roots of the mountains. You can see it in chapter 1. He talks about the roots of the mountains and the weeds are gumming, coming up over his head. Somewhere down around the bottom of the sea, he realizes, wait a minute, I don't want to die. God, would you save me? And again, God acts on behalf of Jonah. But see, I think sitting on this hillside outside of Nineveh, looking on he is so frustrated. I think that he wishes, he looks back on that moment and wishes that God had never appointed the fish. I think that's where Jonah's at in this moment. He is exceedingly angry because he didn't want to call to get up out of his bed and to go to people he didn't want, that he didn't have any concern for. Jonah didn't want to go. And that's really where we're going to start. I mean, God asked this question because of Jonah's attitude about the mission, about his purpose, about what God had asked him to do. Why? Why wouldn't Jonah want to go? Why didn't he want to go? I think there are a lot of reasons that we can develop from the text. I, I think the most obvious here is, is we can see that Jonah, in this, in this verse, Jonah is shown to just not have the same compassion or pity upon people that God has. Jonah is very passionate about some things. We've seen it in his anger. He's very passionate. But he's not compassionate in the way that God is compassionate. And so here, in this question, we are seeing God and Jonah being on two Totally different pages. Why didn't Jonah want to go? Because Jonah cared, but he cared about all the wrong things. See, Jonah, I think, I think Jonah cared more about his own race. Jonah was a racist. Now, 
I first started planning to preach through Jonah, and I was talking to my sons about this, and they were like, oh, he didn't want to go because he was afraid. Where in the book has it ever said? I mean, you, you go back through it. Where has it ever said he didn't go because he was afraid? He didn't go because he didn't want Nineveh forgiven. He didn't think that Nineveh deserved it. But let me ask you a question. Do you think that Jonah would have felt this way if these were Israelite people? I mean, if, if, if this was Galilee, or Nazareth, or Bethlehem, or Jerusalem, would Jonah be happy or angry that God relented when the city repented? Now, we have to make some assumptions here. We don't really see it played out perfectly in the text. But when Jonah prophesied for God before about the restoration of Israel's borders, we don't have any indication that he reacted in anger, that he ran away from that, that, that mission, that he was throwing, throwing God's good traits back at him. So Jonah, Jonah was a racist. I think Jonah, Jonah cared more about his own race. Jonah cared about, more about his own comfort than he did these people. I mean, he wasn't angry for the plant's sake, was he? I mean, I mean, the, the passage just before this, let's just talk about the plant. We don't have to think about anything else just yet. Let's just talk about the plant. Is he angry because the plant died, or is he angry because he's hot and miserable now? He's angry because he's hot and miserable now. You see, he wants his comfort more than he wants the, 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 the blessing. And then if, if Jonah had his way... Do you get what would happen? I mean, just think about the question again. The, the, there's 120,000 people and much cattle. So God gives Jonah this perspective. There's people and there's cattle, and you're upset about a plant. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of the earth and we shouldn't be, be green. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is that in, in the order of creation, where do you think plants rate to animals and people? I mean... Really, you're going to be upset about a plant that you even really had nothing to do with. See, Jonah was more concerned about his comfort than he was these people. Jonah cared more truly about him, his own self. You see, here's the reality. It's not just about a racial issue. It's not just about his comfort issues. It's about his own self-issues, his own self-idolatry. I mean, you think about this. When do we see Jonah celebrating anything in this book? When it's going Jonah's way. It's right around verse 13 of chapter, not, not verse 13, verse 7 of chapter 3, sorry, verse 6 of chapter 3 Jonah has got the plant, the plants are chapter four. He, the, the plant is covering him, providing him shade and saving him from his discomfort is what verse six says. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. It's going his way. Why wouldn't he be glad? But when things don't go Jonah's way, he is exceedingly mad. When's the other time we see Jonah glad? You remember? When he was in the belly of a fish. I mean, in Jonah's mind, I mean, 
I'm going to say, I don't think that's the best place to be, right? I mean, that's not the place. Sitting here, I'm going to pick here opposed to a belly of a fish, right? But on the bottom of a sea, compared to the belly of a fish, I pick the belly of the fish every time because at least there's a chance, right? There's a chance. You're saying I got a chance. Sorry. There's a chance, all right? I mean, I should have never said that. There's a chance that something's going to happen. And how does Jonah respond? I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Celebrates. I mean, all of chapter 2, all 10 verses of chapter 2, actually verses 2 through 9 if you want to be technical. But all, all of chapter 2 is really made up with this praising and celebrating of God because God acted on Jonah's behalf because God did for Jonah what Jonah couldn't do. You see, Jonah isn't concerned about what God wants, and he isn't concerned about the people of Nineveh. He's concerned about his comfort, and he's concerned about what God does in light of what he wants because Jonah cares about himself. Wow, Jonah's a mess, right? Well, it would be really great if we could just kind of stop there. But we can't. See, because the reality is, is that I, I, I think that God left this book hanging with a question because he wanted you to feel the weight of the question. But if we're going to feel the weight of the question, we've got to really get in the skin of Jonah. We've got to find ourselves sitting on the side of a hill looking for the destruction of a city and a people wishing we had our plant and expecting God to do what we want him to do. Oh, but we don't do that, do we? I mean, not not us. We, 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 don't, we don't do that. I think like Jonah, we don't go because we love ourselves and we love people who are like us. I don't think it's that we don't care about other people. No, I think I think we do. We just care more about ourselves and people like us. And Springfield is a city full of railroad tracks, full of divisions. We are a people, not just this church. I'm talking about people in general. We are a people who create divisions just simply to have something to disagree with one another about. I mean, who's your favorite team? It can be that trivial. And people fight about stuff like this and they take it seriously. Who's your favorite team? What part of town do you live in? North side, south side? Where do you frequent? Well, I, I, I like the north side restaurants. But I don't leave my motorcycle helmet out there. I did that even yesterday. See, we are comfortable with our four and no more. Right? People who act like us, talk like us, smell like us, think like us, look like us. Now, I'm not saying, don't, don't hear me saying I. I don't think that, that, that we're, we're all just a bunch of 
a horrible, bigoted racist. I, I don't think it, it, it's to that level, but I think that while we're, we, we may not be proactively pursuing it and pursuing the harm of another people, I don't know that all of us are actually proactively pursuing the best interest of another people. See, isn't that what God told Jonah to go and do? Is one worse than the other? See, like Jonah, we don't go because we enjoy what God has given us more than the mission he has for us. Now, I don't, I don't want you to hear what I'm about to say and think, oh, I can't enjoy the blessings that God has given me and the comforts of, of this life that God has allowed me to have this side of heaven. I Don't hear me saying that at all. But I would caution you not to make the comforts of this life an ultimate thing. But I think in our culture, I think in our culture, I, I think that, that we are easily deceived where we make culture primary. In fact, I would suggest that maybe we struggle with actually prioritizing our comforts over God's mission. I just think about just think about your time and your efforts, your energy and your money. Let's let's pick on let's pick on money for just a second. I mean, let's just think about how much we spend to ensure we have a cell phone data plan. or a television service or a little bit faster internet in our house or Starbucks instead of Panera maybe Folgers instead of Panera See, I'm not saying it's wrong to enjoy those things. Please don't hear that. But, but, but what I'm saying is that we need to be careful not to prioritize those things so that we can't be doing what God's called us to do. Think back to the last time you were called and asked to go somewhere to do something for God's purpose and, and for Jesus' fame. Just think about it. What was the last time? Maybe it was something as big as being asked to go to Senegal and you were asked to go across an ocean and spend thousands of dollars to get there and take time off of work and use your vacation. Maybe it was that big. Maybe it was something much simpler. Maybe it was just going downtown to shoot a video for a gospel-centered human trafficking organization. Maybe it wasn't even that big. Maybe it was just talking to your neighbor. Or maybe it didn't require your time at all, but it required you to give something up of your money that you might send someone else. Or to pray for those who are going. I know the way to this. I feel the way to this in my own life. We hear it time and time again. It's just not for me. It's not my gifting. It's not where I'm comfortable. I just don't have time. Just can't afford that. And I don't want you to think that there's no good reasons, that there's not reasons you should be doing exactly what you're doing. But I feel like we need to be cautioned that sometimes we, like Jonah, prioritize our comfort 
at the cost of the mission. Like Jonah, we don't go because we have too high a view of ourselves and too small a view of God. I think this is our ultimate issue. I think every other issue stems out of this place. I mean, what Jonah wanted was a God that he could command, a God that he could control, a God that came at his bidding. Ring-a-ling-a-ling. I'm in need. God, I, I need you today. I got a big job interview. God, I need you today. I'm not sure how I'm going to meet these bills. God, I need you today. See, we want Santa Claus more than we want God. Right? I'm not saying I'm not saying we're always there. I'm not saying that this is that this is the majority of us. I'm not even I'm not even certain. I'm not even certain that you you don't find yourself struggling against this. I hope you do. I don't think we I don't think we do this intentionally. I don't think it's something that we choose to do. I think it's just the nature of who we are in our fallen selves that we expect God to act upon our command. We expect God to submit to us that we think in some way that God exists for us rather than we exist for Him. But here's this God who looks at Jonah and doesn't crush him, doesn't condemn him, doesn't turn his back on him, but just asks him a question. You see, man, like Jonah, we get to hear this question. Do you you sense that? It's not just that we are fallen and that we can find ourselves in any one of those three areas, but God hasn't left us. He's led you to a place now where you get to hear him speak to you where you get to hear him speak and talk and teach. You see, this is the God. Jonah wants a small God. Sometimes we want a small God, but this is not the God that exists in the Scripture. You see, thankfully, our God is not small. He is great and glorious and good and gracious. Thankfully, as we look at this question, it assumes God's graciousness and his, or his greatness. I'm sorry. It assumes that he's the one big enough and powerful enough and present enough and knowledgeable enough and wise enough to ask this question, shouldn't I pity them? You see, this is the God who all the way through this letter has been appointing winds and storms and worms and plants and rebellious prophets to go and do his bidding. This is the God who rules over all things, who sits above everything, and who has power to stay there, and nothing can dethrone him. He is a great God, and as he has shown his greatness, we begin to experience his glory. Glory as one who is worthy to be worshipped. Glory of one as one who received worship from pagans because the, the sea went quiet when Jonah went overboard. Glory as Jonah reveres him and praises him for a plant and a fish 
glory because he didn't crush Nineveh. But they believed him and they repented. Glory from God being shown at every turn and glory being revealed even in this moment. Rather than crushing, he shows Jonah there's something more. I pity them. He is good. He is good through and through. There is nothing bad in him. Everything he has done has been for the good of the people in this book. There's not a moment where we see God doing something that's wrong or evil or hurtful. Maybe difficult, but not hurtful. Necessary. He is good. All he does is in the best interest of his creation. All he does is in the best interest of his people, and he lets us know that goodness as he gives us his graciousness. You see, God could be good, and you would never know it because he's not obligated to show it to you. But he didn't hold his goodness back in heaven without obligation, and definitely not because we deserve it. He reaches down and He lets us know Him. That's the God that this passage, that this question, that this, 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 this book has been revealing. And I'm thankful that, it, that in here we see this God. I'm thankful that God is not the God of my creation because where would that leave us? Just imagine if we had a God who answered to us. Just imagine if God was exactly like he want, we wanted him to be. Just imagine if God answered to our authority and did what we would say. Just imagine where we would be left. There's no hope there. Because God is not able to do anything we can't do ourselves. There's no promise there. There's no provision there. There's nothing there. This God of our creation would only be able to do what we could imagine. And who would have imagined sending his son to die for a people? Not me. This is the God that asked this question. And I'm grateful that he left us with this question. Because now as we stand in Jonah's place, this is the God that's going to ask you. Should I not pity Springfield? Should I not pity Springfield? A city of 160,000 who don't know their right hand from their left hand, who have been deceived and even disfranchised by empty religion and not the power of the gospel. Every year for the last three years, we have ranked fourth or sixth in the nation for biblical mindedness. But we also top the charts, at least Southwest Missouri does, tops the charts for numbers of human trafficking violations. Springfield tops the charts for crime per capita. Springfield is one of the number one cities, one of the top cities for domestic violence. Shouldn't God pity them? Should he not pity our state? A state of six million. 
who is now making news, which is now making news because of how poorly we treat one another. Should he not pity our nation? A nation of nearly 319 million people who are so deceived that they celebrate slavery to sin as if it's freedom of will. That's pretty significant when you think about what that is. Should he not pity this world? The world he spoke into existence. The world he sustains and provides for by his word. The world that is filled now today by over 7.2 billion, billion people. What about those two little villages in Africa? That he's called our church to go and bring the gospel to you that only account for about 3,000 people. But he's called our church to go and bring the gospel. Should he not pity them? I mean, if he pitied the likes of Nineveh, Jonah, and even us, Shouldn't he pity them? We need to be careful how we answer that question because one reveals something about us that's not necessarily pleasant. The other requires something of us. So just because God pities them, this is the first answer, I think, just because God pities them doesn't mean they are worthy of my concern. Who does that sound like? Jonah. I, I, I don't know if you got it or not, but I don't think we want to be categorized with him. Uh, did you get that's That's not a good light, right? Did you feel that? I think there's another answer. Since God has seen fit to pity them, I, went, I want them to know that his pity is on them. But that requires me to go tell them. And look, we don't need a formal invitation to this. You don't need God to open the heavens up and say, Seth, go. You put your name where my name was. I, I think you get that. You, you don't need to wonder if God pities the world. Look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at what he's done for us. For God so loved the world. God pitied us. He pities the world. It's proven. He provided for salvation that we might know Him because He is compassionate and mercy, mer merciful. He is gracious and He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He has proven it in Jesus. You don't need to wait to see if He pities these people. He pities them. You don't need a formal invitation to go. Because when Jesus was here before he ascended, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Who? All nations. That's not some of them. That's not one or two. That's not the ones that look like us, talk like us, smell like us. 
be like us. That's not that's the, the same color as us. That's not what he said. He said, go make disciples of all nations. He didn't say, wait till they figure out that they need me and then go tell them. He said, go. Go, he says. We don't need an invitation. We don't need to wonder whether he is calling us to it. You don't have to question it anymore because God has put you in this place for this reason that you might hear this question. You today came to a church who is intent upon challenging you to live a life of worship by leading others to worship this great and glorious and good and gracious God. That's what we're about. If you're not about that, you need to get about that if you're one of us. Because that's what we want to be about. That's what God has called us to. That's what He wants us to be. You've been put in this church for this reason. And believe it or not, even in this little church, a church that we run about 120 on a Sunday between the two services, even in this little church, Sitting in a neighborhood in Springfield, Missouri, we have made an influence across the world. And by connecting and partnering with people, your money and your efforts and your energy are making a difference not just in this city, but in our state and in our nation. And especially in a little village in Senegal where no one else was preaching the gospel but two faithful churches. And now we see the beginning of a church with about 15, 20 believers in one village and just the sprout of another in the second. You've heard it said, you've heard it said that we should all be praying, giving, or going. I think based on what God leaves us with in this question is that we should all be praying, giving, and and going. You see, the idea is that not, you don't have to go to Senegal. But you are in a place where God pities people. And you have the answer and the power for life that they might know His compassion. You may not have as much money as the person sitting across the room. But God can make $10 exponential when it's given with a generous heart. You may not have the time or the, the abilities that others have, but by the power of His Spirit, He's given you something to go with, some ability to pay a, play a part in His mission. So as we close out Jonah and we think about these things, let me just leave you one last time with a question. His question, should I not pity Nineveh or Springfield or Missouri or the U.S. or this world? How are you going to answer his question? Let's pray.